This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to The Minefield. We're trying to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Scott, there's so much I want to talk to you about. I don't actually know where to start. Mm. You sound very excited at the prospect. Oh, I'm very excited. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Can I start by for asking me, you a sorry, sorry, for me, sorry. Waleed, the best part of any show is when you say from the outset, I've got so much to talk about. Let me clarify. It's not about today's topic, although I'm very interested in it. I mean, well, I propose today's topic, so you mm. know I'm interested in it. But I, I want to ask you a question about the show we decided not to do. Is that okay? Oh, wow. What show did we decide not to do? Well, we were going to do a show. This was in the wake of the resignation of Gladys Berejiklian. Oh, yeah. Okay. And we were going to do a show about public integrity and people's understanding or relationship with the concept of of integrity, but also corruption and so on and so forth. And I've just had this thing rattling around in my head and I need to ask you, and I'm asking you on air because I actually think there'll be a lot of people in the audience who are reckoning with the same thing. Hmm. It doesn't have to be long. You can take 30 seconds if you want. <laughs> What does it mean when someone resigns as a result of integrity or corruption or something like that? So something that we recognise in principle at least as an incontrovertibly good reason for someone to resign, right? And yet there is widespread mourning that that person has resigned mm. because we feel like we wish they hadn't. And I'm not speaking for myself here, I'm, you know, I'm representing a particular view that I think is quite a strong one mm. that says... You, you left us great. when we needed you most. What? Yes, yeah. And you didn't need to resign over the, I don't care about the thing over which you've resigned. I care more about this other thing and I want you to deal with this other thing and I, I think you're doing a great job. And I wonder what it means for the whole concept of integrity and corruption as, a, as an important idea in our political life. Hmm. And I know we decided not to do this show and I wasn't that interested in it, but it's been bugging me ever since and I feel like I need you to tell me what to think about it. Hmm. It is interesting that this was the same point that was made way back when concerning Bill Clinton, that effectively sure. those who, not to say that there is, that there is... A, very different things, yeah. Very, very, very different things. But there were a great many people who felt that Clinton was doing a, quote-unquote, great job for the economy. There is something about his record that now leaves a lot to be desired. That he did a great job for women, otherwise in office. That he was a great figure for democratic politics. We don't care about extra-presidential or extra-marital issues. I think... One of the things, though, and it is really interesting, I think, pointing out that so much of Clinton's legacy, both on personal and political fronts, really doesn't has not stood the test of time. Uh, and I think that those things are maybe more connected than we are willing to openly acknowledge. I think one of the things that is interesting, though, Waleed, is that democracy works on the basis of very, very specific rituals, things whose uh, gestures forms of behavior, symbolic decisions and symbolic actions whose significance, whose meaning far exceeds any particular moment, uh, the particular contours of any particular action, any particular term in office. So, for instance, the orderly transition of power from one to the next, the process of voting, um, the acknowledgement that a corruption body's investigation needs to take precedence, 
These are all, if you like, forms of, of votive behavior acknowledging the primacy of trust in the institution and the process of democratic politics itself. Agreed. But what does it mean when someone must resign for the maintenance of public confidence and yet it's exactly the opposite of what makes the public confident? Yes. <laughs> that is, the public is confident. Okay, but, but here's the next point. I really do think, I mean, I'm not someone who's ever been persuaded by the idea that strong or virtuous or rhetorically eloquent or courageous people can't nudge the dial of history. Um, there are figures, I think, that really are significant, and again, whose significance exceeds the particular bounds or the span of that particular life. For the most part, however, one of the glories of democratic politics is that virtually every form of decision-making is a collaborative form of decision-making that forms of advice, the input of various persons, they all go into the mix. And the particular person that might announce may well be significant symbolically, may well, there may well be something about that person's rhetoric, about that person's appeal, about that person's life story, for instance, that the public particularly warms to. And yet I think it's a really important thing in democratic politics that we disabuse ourselves of this kind of great figure idea of public administration. The most significant persons that are involved in almost any act of public administration are those who don't front the light of day. Mm. Um, and I think here's one of those moments where political competence, it's, it needs to be acknowledged that political competence and the good decision-making has in fact been shared around. And we need to be extremely suspicious, I think, of any gesture on the part of any significant public leader political leader, to try to hoard all those accomplishments to him or herself and to claim ultimate responsibility or ultimate credit for their success. So, look, I, I, I realize that there are a great many people who have been extremely grateful for the good stewardship, the wise decision-making of the former Premier of New South Wales. At the same time, I think this is part of the glory of democratic politics, that there really is something communal and plural about the task of public administration. Mm. That doesn't satisfy right. you, I feel, though. It, it's helpful. It doesn't satisfy me that there's more I would like to say about it, but we're not doing that show, so I'll move on to the show well, we are doing. Well, just, just quickly, it's, though, it's kind of what would dumb. you want to say? What would you want to say? No, I, I, I just I acknowledge your point that the idea of fighting one figure as though they were responsible for a whole lot of things is, you know, is the wrong thing to do. I don't think it's... It's just factually unlikely to be true. But also... I think there's an incredible gloss over a whole series of mistakes that happens here. But the other, the argument that I think is fascinating about this is where does the situation of emergency arise? Like, what role does that play here? So I think it was actually former minefield guest, Rosalind Dixon, who made this argument. Yeah, that's that true. You don't change the leader, especially over, this is now my interpolation, over something that's not scandalous, a sort of full-blown scandal in the way that you might imagine when you think of an ICAC investigation, right? It's a different kind of... It's sort of at a step removed. And you're in the middle of a genuine, you know, once-in-a-lifetime potentially crisis. And you change the leadership at that point? And you do that to maintain public confidence? No. See, see, here, yeah, see here's where I would actually disagree quite strongly with that. Not, not because there's, no, there's nothing valid in the point. But it's that I think this is a really important democratic 
to say nothing of even moral signal, that uh, the significance, the importance of the everyday in political life is beginning to be reasserted. That, I think, will have greater long-term consequences for the restoration and maintenance of public trust than the continuing fixation in the supreme confidence of a particularly popular leader. Yeah, agreed. But there are presumptions there about the proportionality of something like ICAC in that. Mm, true. Right? And I think a lot of people in New South Wales look at this and go, the premiers we lose over this seem to be the best ones. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I th- anyway, there are dimensions to it. I think we've scratched that far more than I was intending. So, mm, there you go. Well done to you. Um, how are we going to segue to this topic? <laughs> I, I really, I really. Like- I have one. I have one actually. Oh, okay, go on. Okay, so there there is a form of moral reasoning which has it that a particular good involving a large number of people is mm. such that no intermediary or secondary sacrifice ought to get in the way of the maintenance or the pursuit of that particular good. Good. I like like how you're doing this. How's that for a segue? So uh, the maintenance of public confidence in democratic politics as a whole is worth, in this form of moral reasoning, is worth the sacrifice of a particular figure on the altar of public confidence. Potentially. Potentially. The theory, the theory goes, you're talking about utilitarianism. I'm talking about utilitarianism. And the idea that the way we should make ethical and I guess political judgments is by determining what is what delivers the greatest good for the greatest number. And so as a result, you could argue that the greater good is the preservation of the integrity of the system for the greatest number. And therefore, if Gladys Berejiklian has to be sacrificed, then she has to be sacrificed. You could also use the same principles to reach the opposite. <laughs> That's, exactly. That's exactly right. Which is one of the right. great things about a lot of moral philosophies, right? But, <laughs> but the reason I wanted to talk about utilitarianism today, actually, I've, I've wanted to for months, is that I keep running into this thing that in a pandemic, which is, of course, the very context that led us to have this, that little sidebar about Gladys Berejiklian, right? The pandemic looms large over the way that we think about her departure. But the very moral calculus of a pandemic all the way along, it seems to me, has been inescapably utilitarian, hasn't it? Hmm. I mean, when you talk about a lockdown, that's really what you're doing. You are privileging what you think is the greatest good for the greatest number, that is the minimisation of death and severe disease and the overrunning of the health system, you're privileging that over the individual claims or what we might even, if we want, call more liberal claims, Mm -hmm. certainly what we might call individualist claims about people's own well-being, perhaps their mental health, perhaps their economic well-being, businesses being driven to the wall, all of those sorts of things. And it's got me wondering whether or not in the age of a pandemic... Utilitarianism, which by and large I don't particularly like. I, don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say I, I despise it or anything like that. But I, I generally don't love it as a moral philosophy because I think it is too blunt and it overrides too many things that I think are important to human flourishing and the importance of individuals and the particularity of individuals' lives and so on. So... I wouldn't call myself a liberal, but perhaps I have some liberal inclinations in that way. But in a pandemic, it seems to me that utilitarianism has become more or less invincible. Hmm. And I, I don't 
even mean that as a criticism, so much as in what just to me is an interesting observation, is it possible that, I don't want to say all emergency situations, but at the very least a pandemic, which is understood at the sort of most fundamental level is understood mathematically, hmm. right? Hmm. There is a reproduction rate for a virus. And then if you don't do this now, then what you get is, you know, multiples of how many sick people you get, multiples of that down the track and so on and so forth. You have to take individual people and their individual circumstances and the things that are helpful to their own lives flourishing. You're kind of compelled to take that out of the equation as you analyse a, a pandemic or analyse is not right, as you develop policy for dealing or, or measures to respond to a pandemic. And I just wonder whether it's delivered us one of those moments in history where you just have to, even if you don't like utilitarianism, stand back, doff your cap and say utilitarianism has its day here. And I think one of the things that surprised both of us is the extent to which a number of people who I think we would be the last sort of people we would think had undisclosed or unacknowledged utilitarian tendencies or sympathies have come out with straight up and down utilitarian arguments for what needs to be done in a particular situation. For yes, instance, and if, you, if you'd identified, for example, that, hang on, that same argument is the way you justify the use of torture. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. They would be horrified by this. But, but it is. It's exactly how you justify the, I mean, leaving aside... Um, empirical questions about how useful torture actually is. But the idea that, well, hang on, I'm just going to torture this one person and save a thousand lives. I'm not violating anything sacred, I guess. This is a utilitarian argument. Yeah, and I think one of the immediate examples would be, okay, individual conscience or religious objections might be good in otherwise normal times when less is at stake. But in the context of a public health emergency, vaccines should simply be mandated. I don't care if people object to it. I don't care if people have deeply unfounded or religiously based reasons for it. Public health emergency, just vaccinate them all uh, or make them suffer the harshest consequences available. I mean, I, I'm stunned how many people I've heard come up with essentially that particular calculus. So look, let, mm. let's, let's take a step back though. Because I realize that, I mean, we always try, we don't like shying away from serious conversation or even highfalutin language on the show. But if we do use highfalutin language or technical, say, philosophical terms, then we do like to be very, very, very clear what it is that we're talking about. So could we, before we bring in our guest, Wally, can we maybe agree on what it is exactly that we mean by utilitarianism? Could I have a, okay. I have a first crack and you can, yeah, no, no, you can supplement with whatever else you think needs to be added? So I think uh, probably the best way of presenting what utilitarian is, is by describing what those who, who adhere to it describe as being what it has going for it. So one of the immediate things about utilitarianism is that it doesn't have any transcendental goals. Uh, it doesn't have any ambition for human lives apart from what is interior to human lives. And that's what it means really by the pursuit of the maximization of the happiness of the most people as possible. And by happiness, again, you know, happiness may well seem something kind of trivial, but the way we'd probably refer to it now is what most human beings want as part of the condition of human flourishing. So someone like Hervé Jouvin, who's not a utilitarian at all, but he would describe this as the primacy that's given to safety, 
health and pleasure as the kind of the arch cardinal virtues of, of late liberal or late modern times. That, that seems to me about right. So that, these are the goals that utilitarianism seeks. The increase of the health, the safety, the pleasure for most people as possible. That then leads us to the second point, which is that utilitarianism, uh, utilitarianism offers a form of moral currency that is that all individual or particular demands or desires can be translated into. So, for instance, uh, pleasure, uh, you know, one's religious convictions can be translated for many utilitarians into more or less the currency of, say, pleasure. Uh, in other words, a kind of an elective desire, something that adds a little something to life that makes life otherwise really enjoyable. So by translating all goods into a common currency, it lets us evaluate goods next to one another. Uh, the other thing that defines or describes utilitarianism is that it allows a lot of mystery to be taken out of the process of moral decision-making. There's a calculus involved. You work out what brings the most safety, pleasure, health to the most number of people. Uh, and uh, on the basis of that process of calculation, you can pretty much end up with a morally justifiable way ahead. Um, so deliberations over what might be the good or the penultimate good or the supreme good or what might be the bad or the worst, uh, these are all things that are subject to quite precise calculations, uh, which is why I often think of utilitarianism as moral theories for engineers or moral theories <laughs> for scientists uh, you know, or moral theories for economists, that it, it kind of has that, it has that disambiguating non-mysterious. public health teams? Or public health teams, thank you very much. Uh, uh, the other thing that goes along with that then is that utilitarianism is a moral theory without tragedy. Because if you have to make mm -hmm. sacrifices in order to achieve an unambiguous good, those sacrifices weren't bad. Those sacrifices were necessary because the good that was being sought is the greater good. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and I think there is something increasingly appealing in a time of, let's call it both moral inarticulacy and moral incommensurability. There is something incredibly appealing about a moral theory that rules out the possibility of tragedy, that rules out the viciousness of what's sometimes called dirty hands. In other words, I had to do something that I wouldn't otherwise want to do, but I did it. I feel bad about it, but it was worth the sacrifice. What what utilitarianism does is it makes all sacrifices both intelligible and ultimately necessary in the service of what it is that is ultimately being sought. And that means that if necessary, then, the predilections of, the preferences of individuals or groups, these can all be sacrifices along the way. And this, I think, leads us to the, the final characteristic of utilitarianism. It can't be explicit. This is what I find really interesting. If anybody engages in overt, explicit, blunt utilitarianism, utilitarian reasoning, you sound like a moral monster, which is why utilitarianism has to be something that operates in the background. It has to be almost like an operating system, it has to be a form of preferential judgment that never really can see the light of day. When it does surface, it is either in a situation of emergency, like we're seeing at the moment, or it 
comes dressed in certain forms of political, moral, religious rhetoric that deny the utilitarian calculus that's beneath it all. Is that, does that do it for you? Have I missed anything? Mostly. I mean, I would just say that I think there are alternative ways you could conceive of some of the key dimensions of utilitarianism. So you put the emphasis on happiness. I think, for example, you could ditch happiness and make it good. Yeah. And so once you do that, then I think you open up the possibilities for utilitarian, utilitarianisms that have a different sort of calculus, which is why you can reach different conclusions starting from utilitarian premises, I think. Yes, I think that, that that's right. And can I just say off the back of that, that one of the reasons that more people who are interested in utilitarianism should go back and read John Stuart Mill is because what Mill means by utilitarianism is not what, say, Peter Singer means by utilitarianism. One of the really interesting things is that what Mill contrasts utilitarianism to is either the mindless adherent to otherwise cruel and brutal tradition at the expense of people whose lives are being immiserated as a result of that adherence. And he's contrasting it to unalloyed selfishness. In other words, what utilitarian thinking is, is the orientation of the moral self to the well-being of others bound up with any individual decision that I make. Now, I mean, that, that is a form of extremely important moral reasoning. Um, but what it lacks then is a degree of the heartlessness, the calculatedness that I think often uh, comes to the fore with certain forms of utilitarian reasoning today. Right. And now you're, the other point I'd make just quickly is you talk about it, you say it lacks tragedy, right? It's a moral philosophy without tragedy because any of the consequences or the costs associated with following a utilitarian path are just necessary and understood. But every moral philosophy comes with costs. Mm. Liberalism comes with all kinds of enormous costs. Um, some of those costs result in a genuine lack of uh, safety in the lives of people because of the exercise of certain people's freedoms. And I know that you can talk about a harm principle and all that sort of stuff, but actually there are certain forms of harm that I think liberalism isn't very good at capturing, right? That's true. You see that around, I don't know, smoking or access to guns uh, in the United States. Perhaps I'm tippering over into libertarianism now. I, I don't know. We'll have a separate argument about that. If well, like. let's just talk about free speech arguments, for instance. I mean, yeah, b- believe it or not, example. one of yeah. the most powerful arguments against what we often refer to at the moment as a kind of free, as a million free speech doctrine uh, is Mill's own argument in favour of utilitarianism. Mm, right. So I guess this is the point. Any kind of ethical or moral decision you make will have consequences. So, and will hurt certain people in certain circumstances. So if utilitarianism is without tragedy, I wonder if that means everything else must be. Or are you really just talking about an aesthetic mm. that mm. utilitarianism That's just puts on the cloak of not caring about that stuff because it presents itself as a kind of objective thing, you know, taking the perspective of the universe rather than the perspective of the subject somehow removes it from having to emote <laughs> over these things. Mm. Uh, I don't know. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put it in a position where it's the only thing that has consequences and then moves on from them. I think, I think that's inevitable for every... No, you're, you're right. But what it gives, I think, is an alibi to a process of deliberate forgetting. Uh, it gives a moral alibi to the process. It, it, it factors in the ability 
to morally forget about the, the penultimate or the proximate sacrifices that need to be made in the service. It's like the same argument for liberalism. Yeah, or of true. liberalism. Yeah, it's true. Um, this is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. You can listen to the show as a podcast as well on the ABC Listen app anytime you like, uh, or you can subscribe to The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. And I think what happens then is we just turn up weekly and you can listen to us whenever you wish. Uh, our guest is Stephanie Collins. She's associate professor in the Deanoia Institute of Philosophy at Australian Catholic University. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming back and joining us on The Minefield. Thanks so much. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me back. So, look, uh, there are all sorts of things for us to discuss here. Let's just begin, though. I, I try to give an intelligible mud map or thumbnail sketch uh, and, 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 and a not unsympathetic sketch of utilitarianism's core commitments or what it has going for it. What, can we just begin, can you set me straight? Is there anything that I've misrepresented? Is there anything that I've left out of the equation? Is there something that you'd like to bring into the conversation before we move on to this sort of next part of the discussion? Uh, no, I pretty much agree with everything you said. I mean, I would emphasize what Waleed said as well, that uh, utilitarianism, although it is concerned with what's going to produce uh, the best overall consequences or the most welfare, as it's often put, um, that doesn't mean that it can't acknowledge that other choices uh, would have also produced some welfare or would have helped other people. Um, but I think it is true that it, ultimately in utilitarianism, there are no moral dilemmas, right? If if something is, if some particular action is going to produce the best consequences, then you should perform that action and not feel t torn about it. You shouldn't flip a coin. You shouldn't feel any kind of remorse or regret about choosing that thing. And I think that's kind of the sense in which utilitarianism sort of ignores the costs of the action that it advises you to take. It's not so much that it says, oh, other, you know, any other action you could take is just is just rubbish and we ignore it. It's rather that it says you shouldn't feel any remorse or regret and you shouldn't feel any sense of dilemma. Uh, and I think that's something that other moral theories are perhaps better at capturing, right? A theory that's more based on rights will say, oh, violating someone's rights, you should feel a lot of remorse and regret about that. Whereas utilitarianism, yeah, won't care so much. It's funny that you say that, though, because when I think back to key moments of the million press conferences I would have watched um, throughout the pandemic, and especially as someone who lives in Melbourne, so I've had hundreds of days of them now, what's been interesting is the uh, other moments where leaders have actually adopted that tone. I remember there was that moment late last year when Daniel Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, was extending the lockdown, I think. Um, at a point where the wave was coming under control and there was a lot of consternation about this, you know, why can't we get out sooner, all this. And I remember this line, which I will paraphrase, but I, I vividly remember the moment where he said, as a Premier, there are times where you have really difficult decisions to make. This is not one of them. He was really emphatic about it. As in, and it struck me as being utilitarian in the moment, in the way you're describing, you know. Mm. Um, sorry, this is not difficult. I was given what the consequences would be, and so there is only one decision I can make, and here it is. And I wonder, that's what makes me think, or one of the things that makes me think, is there any answer to utilitarianism in the context of a pandemic, really? I mean, we can kind of say, I'm very sorry for your loss occasionally, 
But really, when the chips are down, it, it, utilitarianism doesn't seem to brook any response. And I don't think that there are that many people who are prepared to respond to it. Oh, I, I disagree with that, I think. I think, uh, I yeah, mean... Yeah, actually, maybe I, I overstated I, that. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, people people would, but there's a sociological question, do people disagree with it? And certainly a lot of philosophers disagree with it. But I also think that um, the pandemic hasn't necessarily demonstrated that when the chips are down, utilitarianism is the way to go. And I think we're starting to see that now, you know, particularly in Melbourne with the protests a couple of weeks ago and whatnot, that people are, um, are questioning the limits of utilitarian thinking in, in these kinds of contexts. And I think there's, I mean, more broadly thinking about utilitarianism and the limits of it. I mean, there are a couple of ways in which I think the pandemic has really shown that utilitarianism has limits and, and can't be the kind of the, the panacea for the for these troubled times, as we call them. I mean, one is just in the um, this idea that Scott was talking about, that utilitarianism demands a, a common currency, right? It says that all values are commensurable. All values can kind of be chucked into one cost-benefit analysis. We work out the probabilities of these different costs and benefits occurring if we take different actions, and then, you know, we act to produce the best consequences. But... You know, arguably, lots of values, some values at least, are um, what Isaiah Berlin called incommensurable, right? They can't just be chucked into a, a common currency and chucked into the same cost-benefit analysis. Um, so in the context of the pandemic, right, you might think about sort of a, a disadvantaged teenager who's been missing months and months of in-person school. Perhaps, you know, they don't have the resources at home to do to, for online learning to be, you know, particularly conducive to education. They're missing out on lots of kind of social connections that they would have developed during those months that would have kind of sustained them emotionally and psychologically throughout life, right? You imagine this, this sort of teenager and then you compare the costs to that person of, of the lockdowns with um, an 80-year-old who who's dying, say, five years earlier than they otherwise would have because they contract COVID and that and that kills them. How do we how do we compare those two costs? I, I think it's very difficult. I mean, of course, you know, economists will talk about quality-adjusted life years and these sorts of measures that are meant to capture this stuff, but I think it's very difficult to commensurate the value of months and months of a teenager being stuck at home with months of life um, later in life. So this sure, idea but, of but aren't, but aren't they competing utilitarian arguments, though? I guess that's what I'm driving at, right? So the person who says, well, these people who died are overwhelmingly old and they were going to die soon anyway, um, compare that to the lost education um, and formative social experiences for kids. Aren't they making a greater good argument? Not necessarily, and this is where the point about um, tragedy, acknowledging tragedy, comes in. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that uh, we should, you know, view the cost of teenagers as outweighing the costs to octogenarians, right? That that would be kind of a utilitarian argument because we're saying, well, the costs here are higher, therefore we should end lockdowns or whatever. It's not it's not that claim that the costs to teenagers are higher in some common currency that we can use to compare these two individuals, the teenager and and the octogenarian. Um, the claim is rather we we can't compare these values. It's, it's always going to be a dilemma in the sense of there's no right answer. 
there's just no fact of the matter about um, what we should do, how we should weigh off these two different values. And so for that reason, we should always feel a strong sense of tragedy and we should never take the kind of attitude that you described um, Daniel Andrews as taking, you know, in that press conference that you described. Um, yeah, so, so certainly the utilitarian could make the point, oh, cost to young people are higher than cost to older people. But there's a, there's a deeper point which can be made, which is that we just can't compare them. And to think that we can and that that's straightforward and we can just put them into an Excel spreadsheet and get an answer, I think sort of oversimplifies different values in life. Um, Stephanie, I just want to go back for a second to this idea of, of incommensurable values. Um, I mean, I've, I've long been suspicious of the idea that goods can be reduced to a particular currency and that those currency, especially that, that currency, especially insofar as it kind of it, it rules out forms of value, expressions of what really is meaningful in human interaction, human cooperativity, human communication, human proximity, human intimacy, uh, the way that it, uh, the, in other words, the things that can't be measured are the things that get left out of the equation. And yet in many respects, those are the very things that matter most, that mean most within human life. Um, so th this idea of not just the incommensurability of certain values, that there's certain things that are important that can't easily be gelled or be, be harmonized. I'm wondering before I, I guess, go on to the next thing I want to ask you, what is the good of recognizing the incommensurability of values? In other words, are we saying that the universe is fundamentally disordered, that things matter to people it's a shame that we need to care about things that matter to people in the way that they do. Uh, not everything leads to the same common good. Not everything leads to the same ultimate good. There are just all these proximate goods all around the place that jostle up against one another. Are incommensurable values, is this a problem for moral philosophy? Is this a problem for democratic politics? Or to put it maybe a little bit glibly, is this one of the features of moral philosophy? Is, is this one of the goods that adheres to democratic politics as such? Yeah, I mean, as whether it's a good about moral philosophy, I mean, the goal of moral philosophy is to sort of try and work out moral, what, which moral facts, if any, are kind of out there and, and that we should um, adhere to and respect. So uh, whether value pluralism is a good thing for moral philosophy, well, that depends on whether value pluralism is true. And of course, different moral philosophers will say different things. Utilitarians mm. will say no, others will say yes. Um, as to democratic politics, though, I think a recognition of incommensurability or value pluralism uh, is absolutely a good thing for democratic politics because it encourages debate. It encourages different people to um, emphasise different values um, that may be incommensurable with one another. And we can try and kind of have a conversation about which of these values is worth paying attention to or worth promoting in a different context and, and which ones in which other contexts. Without that debate being shut down by the kind of black and white conclusions of a doctrine like utilitarianism. So I think it's, it helps with, um, I mean, free speech was something you talked about earlier. I think it, it helps promote the kind of marketplace of ideas, which, which was another um, of John Stuart Mill's kind of uh, famous doctrines. So I think it's a good thing for democratic politics. Okay, see, so here's why I'm asking, though, because 
I mean, I, I've, I've never particularly liked the idea of sort of values pluralism, as if there's something about the plurality of values that means that, that the values themselves need to be washed out or to some extent diluted. Uh, the very fact of these things existing in the same space means that none of them can be ultimate, none of them can have a kind of integrity all of their own. Whereas this kind of pluralism, this kind of incommensibility is a good thing for democratic politics. It, it just strikes me that one of the assumptions that the incommensurability of values being not necessarily a good thing for moral philosophy, one of the assumptions that that brings along with it, and uh, it's not an assumption that I'm accusing you of, is that compromise or even what could be referred to as sacrifice within a democratic context is necessarily a bad thing. In other words, by me not getting what I want ultimately, by me not getting what I would choose all things being equal or no other constraints being present, uh, me not getting what I want is a bad thing. And me having to sacrifice for the sake of other people is one of those minor concessions that I then do in order to live peaceably with others. It just strikes me that one of the things that we discover within really any moral philosophy worth its salt is that accommodating oneself to the moral reality of other persons, setting out or laying out the process of desire or pursuit of what I believe the good to be, laying that out along a longer time frame, making compromises along the way as a way of acknowledging, giving full acknowledgement to the moral reality of other persons. These aren't necessarily things that are being sacrificed in the meantime or sacrificed in the interim, but rather these are in fact forms of gain, even forms of learning through the process of accommodating myself to the moral reality of other persons. And so I, I guess one of, the, one of the problems that I've had with the straight up and down utilitarian advocacy of the way that we appeal to a, or way that we address a public health crisis is, well, this is what we would really want to do. Any movement away from that as a way of accommodating particular religious groups or conscientious objectors or anti-vax denialists or whatever, these are all things that move us away from that ideal. It just strikes me that the accommodation within a healthy democratic community to the particular concerns, the recognition of the time that it takes in order to pursue things that really are good in a democratic context, there are similar gains that are made there. There are solutions that are discovered through the process of taking time, through the process of accommodating, through the process of making compromises that simply would not have been imaginable uh, had we been able to impose a particular ideal on reality as it actually stands. So there, I guess I'm wondering, incommensurability both in democratic politics and in moral philosophy, it's not just about sacrifices. It's also about things that are discovered through the process of fully acknowledging the moral reality of other persons. Yeah, I would agree 100% with that. I mean, um, a commitment to value and commensurability uh, can't just come along with a kind of pig-headed, self-righteous, um, you know, knee-jerk commitment to whichever values or happen to Pop, in, pop into your mind as things that you care about in your life, or nor is it, um, nor can it be used as a cover for self-interest, nor should it be used as a cover for self-interest. I mean, of course, sometimes it is, um, but that's kind of a, a misuse of the idea of value and commensurability when it's used in, in that way. So absolutely, I think um, across time, a commitment to acknowledging the incommensurability of some values um, can 
if we do it in an open-minded way, uh, leads to kind of a greater appreciation of the sacrifices of others, as well as a greater appreciation of the sacrifices that we might be called upon to make um, for values that we might not necessarily endorse, um, but we can, if, we commit, if we're committed to value pluralism, we can say, well, okay, we've had a democratic discussion. I see that some people are committed to those values. I kind of accept that I have to make this sacrifice. And actually this point about sacrifice goes to, um, goes to a second point that I wanted to make about the limits of utilitarianism as exposed by the pandemic. And that is this, that within utilitarianism, there is no limit to how much you can ask a person to sacrifice for the greater good, right? So torture was, was mentioned earlier, which is a you know, famous kind of counterexample of utilitarianism. They'll say, you know, it's fine to torture one person to save 10 or whatever. And so this sort of idea in utilitarianism that people are, as it's sometimes put, receptacles of happiness. People are just kind of cups that hold happiness or welfare or whatever you kind of think the human good is made up of. And and the goal of like public policy is just to produce as much of this liquid, this happiness liquid as we can. We don't care how it's distributed across the cups, right? We don't care that some people maybe end up with nothing and some people end up with a lot. Um, so this question about how to distribute costs and benefits, benefits amongst different people is one that utilitarianism has a hard time kind of accommodating. Um, and that's a problem, of course, because many contemporary moral philosophers are going to say that some sacrifices are too much to ask of people. Uh, if, you, if you ask people to sacrifice something that makes their life worth living, um, maybe, you know, for um, going back to the COVID case, if we're thinking about um, someone in aged care who's in their final days and can't have that many visitors, we can only have one visitor or no visitors, maybe that makes those last days kind of not worth living for them. Um, we also might think that, you know, our ability to kind of um, make uh, make choices in life, have some sort of freedoms about the ways in which we're going to pursue different careers or hobbies here if we're thinking about the costs to a teenager, right? Um, these sorts of costs might, might be too much to ask of people. And utilitarianism doesn't doesn't allow us to ask that question because the question is just how can we produce as much happiness liquid as possible? We don't care that, um, you know, some cups are going to end up without any liquid in them to, to push the analogy a bit too far. Um, so, yeah, so that question of sacrifice, how much sacrifice can we ask of, of any one individual is another place where I think utilitarianism falls down. You're listening to The Minefield. If you just joined us, we'll eat out these. My name Scott Stevens is my co-host. And the voice you just heard belongs to Stephanie Collins, who's Associate Professor in the Dianoia Institute of Philosophy at the Australian Catholic University. Um, Stephanie, is the cup thing you just said quite right, given sort of the catchphrase of utilitarianism is the greatest good for the greatest number? So, so surely you can't satisfy its conditions by having maximised good in the hands of one person, for example. A certain level of distribution is kind of implicit, isn't it? Well, that's why that famous um, idea of Bentham's greatest good for greatest number uh, it, it requires specification. That idea, the greatest good for the greatest number, doesn't answer the question, wait, wait, is it the greatest good or is it good for the greatest number? <laughs> you have to, that mm. kind of famous catchphrase is, is ambiguous on that question. Uh, 
but the way, you know, contemporary utilitarians and, I mean, the way Bentham's often read is as saying it's about producing as much happiness or if not happiness, human well-being, let's say, let's be a bit more capacious in our understanding. Um, it's about producing as much human well-being as possible um, without caring about distribution. Now, I should say the utilitarian can care about distribution kind of indirectly because they can say, oh, if you ask too much of people, then um, people will uh, become unhappy and that unhappiness will kind of percolate throughout society. And then even the people who have a lot will fear losing it because they will know that they could be asked to sacrifice it and that'll make even the people who have a lot very unhappy, right? They can kind of tell this story. Um, of course, it's an empirical question how true that story is, whether humans, human psychology and sociology really goes that way, that people who have a lot will be so afraid of losing it that um, ultimately they'll be less happy. But um, utilitarians can go that way. But in the kind of foundations of the doctrine, um, what's sometimes called the separateness of persons, which is something liberals care a lot about, um, is mm -hmm. not something that a utilitarian is going to care about at the foundations, if that makes sense. They might care about it as yeah. a means to producing the most happiness, but, but that's somewhat different. That's different. But it has to mean something. Otherwise, there'd be no point saying for the greatest number. You would just say the greatest good, right? Yeah. I mean, as I say, it's um, it's an open question what – how we should interpret that catchphrase, uh, and certainly you can say, you can emphasise um, the greatest number part of it. But if you're going to emphasise the greatest number part of it, then you've got to tell us how we trade off these two different things of yes. making as many people happiness, making as many people as possible happy, and producing as much happiness as possible. Those are two different yes. things. Make lots of people happy. If everyone's mildly make miserable, really happy. is that better? Exactly. Than, yes, I understand. Yeah. Um, Okay, so the points that both you and Scott have made about incommensurability, for example, um, value pluralism, all that sort of stuff, I think is really important. Um, and I will happily admit it's it's the element of utilitarianism that I have downplayed in my thinking about how it maps onto a pandemic. Nonetheless, I, I do want to say, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to overemphasise that in the context of discussing the way we are reasoning our way through the pandemic, because I still think it's possible, maybe you would say it's not persuasive, but it, I, th I think it is possible to reframe even all the debates we're having in the pandemic in utilitarian terms in that way. So for example, uh, let's take Melbourne as the case study, because as you no doubt heard a million times this week, it, it, it clocked up more days in lockdown than any other city in the world, and all that sort of stuff, whatever that's meant to mean practice, I don't know, but given different severities of lockdowns and all that stuff. But nonetheless, it's a very locked down city, right? And what we've seen in the past month, I would say, I don't know if you agree with that, Stephanie, but past month is that Melbourne finally broke. It, it ran into the limit of what you can ask people to mm. do. And so levels of non-compliance have just become quite high um, and case numbers explode and there's really no way. And the government more or less seems to have admitted that um, and has more or less given up on that aspect of it. Um, it's not policing every street. So I wonder though whether or not you can say, is that is that an anti-utilitarian impulse or is that in utilitarian terms a sign being given from the people or just from sort of the inevitable outcomes of lockdowns over a period of time? that we still agree that we want to do the greatest good for the greatest number, but this is telling us you got your calculation wrong or that at the very least it needs to be amended because 
the sacrifice that you are asking us to make now is an order of magnitude greater than it was a year ago or however many months ago. Um, and so while we don't dispute the overarching principle, the overarching premise here, we're now just having an argument over the maths, if you like. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think some Melburnians are maybe taking that angle of, um, I mean, especially, you know, because deaths, death rates aren't what they were at the height of the second wave and things mm. like that. Some some Melburnians might really be thinking, yeah, well, you know, at this point, the number amount of time we've been in lockdown, the number of deaths, say, that we're seeing in this wave just means the utilitarian calculus comes up differently and actually it comes out um, in favour of greater freedoms or what have you. Some of them might be doing that. I my suspicion, and I, mean, I haven't gone out and surveyed people, but my suspicion is that m most Melburnians, if you're thinking about, say, young people having, you know, footy final parties or what have you, perhaps not thinking about it in such a explicit way. My guess is that it's rather um, a thought that we've sacrificed a year and a half of our lives up to this point. So, I mean, obviously last summer was great and whatever, but, you know, more or less we've sort of sacrificed many months at this point. And um, even if deaths were at, I don't know, 30, 50, 100 a day, you still might be seeing these levels of non-compliance. I mean, it's, we really have to ask that that question. What if deaths were much higher right now? Would, would Melbourneians still be not complying and if the answer to that question is yes, then I think what they're doing is making a point about how much we can ask of them rather than a point about how the utilitarian calculus, in fact, falls. Yeah, I, so I, t I take that point. But at the same time, you can easily imagine a scenario where the results, the deaths, the, the misery is just so much greater that mm. asking for the sacrifice would would be a much easier thing to do, right? So yeah. you know, I imagine you know a, a war effort that goes on for a decade, for example, um, all kinds of sacrifices get made, rationing, all kinds of things happen and people make them over a period of time because they can see the catastrophe that looms. So, uh, you know, nothing's pure in any of these examples, right? Partly you say, are people, you know, thinking about it in these utilitarian ways? I would say, I don't think most people go around reasoning through sort of the neural pathways of moral philosophy generally. Right? I just don't think that's... <laughs> yeah, think oh, that's really? Good. Yeah. Um, oh. And maybe that's yeah, all good, by the way. I'm not criticising them for that. But so I'm not sure that's quite the test. But I do think you can see signs of what I'm trying to say in the fact that many of the people who are now saying, right, it's time to open up, are exactly the same people who were saying, oh, we really have to lock down very hard. Mm. Chief among them, the Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, right, whose change in rhetoric has been extraordinary in that way. Like, make no mistake, we are opening up while he's setting records for, for daily case numbers. And I don't think it's that he's contradicting himself. I think it's that he's probably, as many people who would be reasoning along the same lines, he's probably just recalculating himself. And it may not be this is done explicitly, but the, and there is some kind of instinctiveness to it. But I still think the overarching principle would remain the same. And those people are kind of the evidence of it, aren't they? I think you you could be right about, about Dan Andrews, um, that he's doing the calculation and has decided that, you know, in the light of vaccines and so on, uh, the rate of deaths and hospitalizations is, is is no longer enough to justify, you know, never-ending lockdowns. I think, you, I think you could be right about him. I 
do think, though, even if it's a long term, I mean, you mentioned wars, right? I mean, to, you know, I'm no historian, but my understanding is towards the end of World War II, people in Britain were getting really sick mm, right. of the that's war right. effort, right? They, uh, you mm. know, having to hunker down in subway stations and all the rest of it during bombings. People were, people were, you know, questioning the war. Um, so I think even if, even when the greater good for the greater number that is to be produced is, you know, in retrospect, seems very high indeed. People can still get to a breaking point where they say, you mm. know what, this this is getting to the point where my life is being held hostage for something that I agree might, from the point of view of the universe, be a greater good, but that from my personal perspective is weighing down on me to the point where my life is kind of no longer my life and I'm starting to right. fail to the point of, of, of you and, know, my life in itself. So, yeah, I, I, open question what's going on in the minds of most Melburnians these days. Um, but I think there is there is that point that gets reached for people, that breaking point. Right. And so the question is, is that selfishness or is that actually an expression that, hang on, there is something sacred being violated here that utilitarianism just refuses to recognise as sacred because it doesn't have the philosophical or moral technology to do so? Exactly. And I think we can say that there's something sacred being violated here while also saying, and you know what, sorry, but we need to violate it. I think mm. that's a consistent move, um, mm. but it's not one that sits very easily with utilitarianism. Wow, that's interesting. I'm afraid we're at an end, mm. Stephanie. Um, I'm, I'm so glad the show worked out the way it did because I've wanted to do it for so long and you've definitely delivered on, well, you've gone beyond my vision for it. So thank you very much for your contribution oh, great. to it. Thank Thanks um, so much. Not at all. Stephanie Collins is Associate Professor of the Dianoia Institute of Philosophy at the Australian Catholic University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefields, which is now at an end. But we'll be back next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.